The Trader Cobb Crypto Show, talking business in blockchain. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the TraderCobb Crypto Show. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to have Joel Emery on the show today. Now, Joel is an institutional investor with 20 plus years of experience trading, uh, sorry, investing across many different platforms and markets. Now, what Joel specializes in is looking for disruptive technologies, blockchain being one of these disruptive technologies. He's the founding partner, chief investment officer, and portfolio manager at Terio Capital Management. And it's an absolute honor to have him here. Joel, please, if, if you could just let the guys know and do a bit of an introduction on yourself and thank you so much for being here well thanks thank you so much for having me uh, very excited to be here and have this uh, conversation as you mentioned uh, i have uh, through my career been focused on di- disruptive technologies and i don't know if there's been a bigger disruptive technology uh, than the blockchain and the resulting cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem and we're very excited to be on this call with you uh, to s- discuss this opportunity not only for uh, traders but the institutional investor community at large yeah, and look, my audience is going to be very, very interested to hear this because I, I know that I, I cover this subject quite frequently about the need for institutional money to come in. Like we've we've got in this space at the moment a very irrational uh, and immature marketplace, very highly emotional, and that's because I and this is I'm not saying this is a derogatory term or, or a negative uh, you know way of speaking to the people that are in the space now, but they don't have that experience that institutional money brings. Institutional money tends to make a decision and stick by its convictions which means less volatility in many cases. Now, we like volatility as a trader, but as investors, we want to see volatility, but get in early, see the volatility start to minimize. I think institutional money coming in will provide us with that function that we need for this market to go from half a trillion dollars into the multiple trillions, which I believe that we can see happening. Now, from your point of view at Terio Capital, what is your play at the moment, Joel? What is your sole focus and where are you headed with it? Uh, you know, I, I would agree. So at, at the present time, you know, I would say from a, a cryptocurrency standpoint, we're uh, much more on the same side that you you just mentioned. You know, we're looking for uh, trading opportunities, looking for arbitrage across exchanges. We're looking for, uh, you know, use of more of a quantitative arbitrage uh, algorithm type of uh, strategy to uh, take what uh, are uh, what I think are easy to make uh, uh, spreads at this moment in the marketplace. At the same time, we're also evaluating potential investments. Now, this takes uh, uh, a little bit more time. It also, with uh, the information that's provided, many circumstances nowhere near what you would receive in the equity or fixed income market. So, uh, you know, being an advisor and/or you know, really paring through a lot of the uh, white papers, uh, really trying to get to know some of the uh, uh, newer ICOs that are out there, I think we're going to see a, a, not only a, a difference in terms of the investor type, but the, a difference in terms of uh, the opportunity set of, of what we can invest in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think uh, you touched on a couple of, of, of pretty important points right then. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned was the the spreads um, you know, and the arbitrage. The, the, the potential there is right now, it just seems to me like the potential is limitless. Um, some of the spreads are insane and some of the ARBs opportunities are also insane. So hopefully you can uh, you can hit the, hit the nail on the head with that, mate. Um, with respect to what you're looking at, um, uh, when you say talk about looking at smaller or newer ICOs, 
Do you currently have a bit of a blueprint for what you're looking for? Because one of the things I think is holding the space back for institutional investors is value. As an investor, we look for value. If you're looking at trading or investing in a traditional market, there is so much data that you can look across. Uh, one of the ones that most people will be aware of is price to earnings or price to earnings growth ratios. It's one that's typically flouted around everywhere you look. Now, we don't really have those sorts of mechanisms at this stage in this marketplace. Are you looking to create that? If not, how do you find perceived value or is it just about getting in really, really early so your risk is greatly minimized? I'm going to take your your last statement and then work backwards. Uh, you know, you're, you're exactly <laughs> correct. So look, the, the more uh, valuation uh, gap that I can create by being early, uh, participating uh, in a in a pre ICO or or an early ICO definitely gives me more latitude in terms of uh, my ability to be wrong and and still manage that volatility and hold a position for a longer period of time. Uh, with that said, you know I I do believe as as time goes on, you know we're going to continue to look for uh, coins. You know whether that's you know in the traditional uh, currency space or more in the altcoin space, but I think you're going to see some uh, more uh, traditional abilities to be able to to value uh, as you start to bring coins that uh, I think have some of the more uh, traditional valuation metrics. And first and foremost, you know, is it producing a revenue? Is it producing an earnings? You know, is there an actual product? You know, I think we've gone through a period of time where, you know, a lot of these, if we compare it to the equity market, we're talking about very early VC type of uh, a comparison. Whereas now I think you, you know, as time goes on, you're seeing uh, much more prepared uh, ICOs from a, a ready to, you know, come to market, uh, whether, you know, on a comparison basis, that's a, a late VC, you know, late uh, private round, uh, almost a comparable to a, a real IPO um, with a real product, with potential revenues that you can measure, with potential earnings that you might be able to measure. And so I, I think both from a standpoint of uh, actual products that we can evaluate, but also I think over time, uh, us as investors are going to have to demand more from these companies in terms of what they're providing f- from a financial metric standpoint. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, one little uh, rabbit hole I'd like to explore with you, Joel, would be um, the revenue. Now, we've seen you know lack of revenue mania before, which is called the dot-com boom. Now, we are seeing some very, very close similarities going ahead now. I mean, we're seeing tokens uh, out there that are, you know, or projects that are out there that are worth billions as far as their market capitalization goes. They still don't have a working product. They're still not turning over a single dime. And a lot of them are still trying to find an issue to solve. Now, with that being said, um, I mean, you've been through the dot-com. I studied the dot-com era, okay, because I, I was, oh, what was I, 16, 17 during that period. I'm in my mid-30s now. So I wasn't trading it. I was watching what was going on, but I wasn't able to you know, view it from a investor. I didn't have an investor sh- head on my shoulders yet. It was the, it was the birthplace of, of that for me. The similarities, do you see major similarities and because of that is that affecting the way you approach this booming and very new space well th- there's some similarities but there's also some some vast differences so from a similarity standpoint I, i'm going to bring both uh you know that internet age which i think is important comparison i'm also going to bring in the biotech age 
And the reason why I'm bringing biotech is when you think about the combination of tech and biotech, you know, the, the lead time on biotech and the length of time it takes you to get a product to market is very long. And I think you're seeing that in some of these projects. So I, I think sometimes people forget, you know, and if you bring in kind of what I think of the three big pieces, you know, what is that total addressable market? You know, what is that revenue potential? But then the, the other side of that is how long is it going to take before we start to see some of these companies generate revenues? And, and does that make sense? You know, does it make sense in terms of what that 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 market cap that they just raised in their most recent ICO, does that make sense relative to the capital they need to put to work to generate that product or what period of time that they're going to need to generate uh, 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 that actual product to market? And, and is it going to uh, fit into an addressable market that makes sense from an overall uh, valuation standpoint? So I think all of those pieces are going to be important. I think they're they're good uh, stepping stones for how an investor should think about uh, investing in this space and thinking about not only ICOs but but coins in general. Of, of of does this make sense for for me to invest in? You can do the same thing, you know, with with Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, when you think about that addressable market from a, a money supply standpoint. Uh, you can look at M1. You can look at uh, money supply from an emerging market standpoint. You can look at money supply from the from the markets where it's most uh, uh, appropriate that they likely continue to expand at the fastest rate and and think about what that potential size of the market is. So uh, th- that is what we do, and and I think it's a good you know baseline for how to think about valuation and. You know, I think that's one thing that I think a lot of uh, investors or what, what, as you mentioned earlier, traders that we have in the space currently, they purely think about, you know, where's the space trading? What are the different coins trading relative to each other? And does that make sense versus a valuation of what the potential is? And that's the difference between a trader and investor. But I will say, I think the, 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 uh, the gap between how many investors you have in the spaces versus traders right now is is, is pretty sizable. Yeah, and, and I think it should be. Uh, I mean, look, you know, investing. Look, investing, you need to have good timing, but trading, you need to have pinpoint timing. If you're going to be trading <laughs> yes. and you're going to be doing it properly, you, you need to have stop losses and manage your risk like an absolute maniac. That is, I mean, trading is risk management, full stop. I mean, investing yes. is risk management, full stop as well. But with trading, you are trying to pinpoint the exact moment in which something is going to either go up or down. Not only do you need to get direction right, with an investment, you've got to get direction right, but with trading, you've got to get direction and timing, because there's a lot of people out there, a lot of traders that got direction right and are dead set broke right now. So it's it's a combination of the two that I bring in, the, the, that I work with. Um, I've been trading for a very very long time uh, in terms of my lifespan, uh, percentage wise. Uh, it's pretty much what I know. Uh, and the investment side, I've also been doing that, but I've never invested in something more than I've invested in this technology. Not only have I built a business, a couple of businesses around it, so I've thrown all my time into it, but I've also thrown considerable money into this space because I like you believe in myself to be able to spot a good thing when it comes across and i see this as my dot-com moment an opportunity uh to change the way things are done i love to see progression Uh, a prime example of that is i mean it's uber yeah like I, I used to have to go to Double Bay a lot for meetings. I live in Bondi. Double Bay is like a 12-minute drive from Bondi. It's really, really close. I have to get a meeting often at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, try and get a taxi in Bondi at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Along comes Uber. I can get one whenever I want. 
it's it's easy. I don't have to tell them where I'm going so they ignore me. This is a disruptive technology that has completely killed the taxi industry, and I'm all for that. I feel sorry for the drivers. They're the ones that get duped at the end of the day. But as an industry, if you turn your back on what the consumer actually wants and you totally ignore them, you have a monopoly because otherwise your business wouldn't exist. If there was real competition, you'd be wiped out. This competition has come in and wiped them out. I see blockchain technology as a way to sharpen up many industries that have gone to sleep at the wheel and they're driving through indiscriminately ripping people off or doing the wrong things. I really am excited about, A, the investment opportunities from a pure, purely um, capitalism point of view, but also the way in which we can sort of shape the next generation of, uh, of business doers, of pr- product providers and uh, consumer relationships. So I think it's a really, really exciting time. So when it comes to your fund and, and the institutional investment side of things, what is the biggest hurdle for institutional money right now to start to flood in? What do you think is the biggest hurdle? There's basically two big hurdles, uh, and I'm going to start with one just to carry on from your last conversation in terms of how you think about a market that's as volatile as this as a trader versus an investor. So, you know, yes, I can trade that market, but as an investor, I'd like to have all the tools in my toolbox. And those tools would include my ability to short whatever coin I want to short, be able to use futures, options, et cetera, and have a full uh, armament within my toolbox to hedge my risk in and in a, in a particularly this market that we're in now of, of a, where we saw this pretty significant uh, drawdown. Uh, and that's that's not what we have right now. So having a you know, a full armament of, of hedging capabilities is first and foremost from a, from a hedge fund standpoint. On the uh, larger front, in terms of all institutional investors from long only to long short, uh, the biggest thing, and, and this is in, in particular within the U.S., is uh, a custodian. Um, the custodian requirements in the U.S. are, are, are it's a pretty high hurdle. Uh you know, and uh, for you to receive an SEC approval uh, as a as an uh, institutional ad- advisor and bring on uh, client money over 150 million, that custodian uh, relationship is extraordinarily important. And when the cryptocurrency space, you know, it's ex- it's just completely different than anything we've seen in the past. So you have none of the top custodians that are involved currently. You really have to look for new entrants into the market space. And those new entrants, you know, have to do two things. They have to secure uh, your information beyond anything that has ever been secured before, uh, both from a standpoint of, of protecting uh, your keys, but also from the standpoint of that anything goes wrong in terms of holding those keys, that they could be able to restore that uh, in a timely manner. In addition, you want the timeliness of being able to upload from that cold wallet into a hot wallet as fast as you can and be able to trade as effectively mm. as you can. And if I'm trying to, you know, put a significant amount of capital to work, you, you know, using algorithms, using arbitrage, you know, let's forget investing for a second. You know, I need that speed of, of and that efficiency uh, from my custodian, my, my cold wallet to, to my hot wallet. And, uh, and that's what right now I'd say we're only about 50% of the way there. Yeah, and you also need market depth. I mean, that's one thing that uh, that I some, sometimes struggle with when it comes to uh, getting a position on is 
getting the prices that you want at the time that you want can can be difficult. It's much easier to be an investor if you're going to get a large position because you can build a position. You've got your you know you're investing for a period of time as a trader. I need to be in here. I can't afford to have much slippage because of course slippage increases my risk and therefore I don't you know the the, the values of the trade are greatly diminished if the risk increases. Now, Correct. one thing that frustrates the hell out of me, and it comes back to what you said about your ability with the tools like futures, options, and hedging, essentially, is what you're getting at. It's it's not just the hedging side of it right now. Uh, it, it goes beyond that. The the issue that I have, and this is something that I, I would love to find the right person to work on, and I am endeavouring to do that at the moment, is to create a truly inclusive platform that traders can actually use. I mean, I'm used to trading foreign exchange, commodities, you know, bonds. I, I traded everything that moved. And, of course, with that institutional-grade investment class, you do get uh, a wealth of information present at your fingertips, and you also get execution tools that are the best that, you, that, that exist. I mean, I can click and get whatever I want whenever I want with an entry stop multiple targets on just about any platform that I decide to trade with. Sure, this platform might have a tighter euro dollar cross than this one over here, so I'll open an account with that one. But what it does currently is I think what's happened in the market is that these platforms, let's call them platforms, they're trading platforms, they're brokerage accounts, yeah? These platforms have seen such extraordinary growth that they focus not on the product but on onboarding people. If you've got a business where you've got to shut the front door because there are so many people coming through it, is your objective going to be, right, let's make sure all the products are better. Let's make sure we can raise an order with an entry stop and multiple targets at the same time for the client to have an easier use and minimize their risk and you know improve the user experience or – Shall we bring on another hundred thousand clients and make another hundred million dollars? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's. I think they've been more focused on bringing more people in, and because of that, we've seen the 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 usability of the technology suffer. And I think that there is a definite definitely a space right now. And if I don't necessarily want to create it, but if it's not going to be created by somebody else, then I bloody well do it because I need it. Um, the the ease of use for a trader to have the tools that I need. Like I go from using a platform like TradeStation, for example, beautiful platform, works like an absolute gem, wonderful charting, everything I need right there. And then I go and have to use something like TradingView, which is a web-based platform. I can't even have it across all my monitors with all the screens linked. So there's a huge, despite the fact that this is amazingly advanced tech, i.e. blockchain, the, the, the execution platforms are still so primitive and that needs to come up. With institutional money, I think they'll create their own and that will give us the market depth. That will give us the volume to get the trades sizable enough for institutions to be able to play aside from Bitcoin, Ethereum. Yeah, and, and and I'll take that a step further. I mean, you know, that's that's basically the the project that I've been working with in terms of blockchain terminal. You know, that that's the third piece that I believe institutional investors need, not only from a security and a compliance standpoint. So this is a, a non web based solution, but uh, you know, from where they are and from where they're going, you know, the ability to have the the technical capabilities, the tools you need, the information you need to look across the market, all the social feed, the news, uh, everything you potentially would want to use to trade cryptocurrency. Uh, and then the piece that they're working on currently, which goes to your point on, on depth, you know, right now, if let's say, you know, 
you want to trade a hundred thousand Bitcoin, you know, you're basically waiting for some guy in Twitter to throw out that, you know, hey, hey I got, you know, I got a hundred thousand or I got fifty thousand. That's not the way the equity or fixed income markets work. You know, you know, ideally what you want is, you know, market makers, OTC, you know, it would would be basically be able to show you uh, that uh, offer uh, through a system, your trading platform, and and you can go out and, and access some of that. Uh, and that's one of the pieces that they're they're working and striving towards right now is to be able to to be able to have what I would use the term introducing brokers, introducing market makers uh, with with volume that really would streamline the industry and uh, make this much, much, much simpler. There's people that uh, out there that want to buy and sell in volume and they simply can't do it right now. Yes, I, I agree with you. And if they do, they get uh, they get shot down because they say, well, why don't you do it over the counter? Why are you making the market dump? And whether it's fact, whether it's fiction, uh, these people get crucified yeah. uh, quite frequently. And you know what? It's in their, it's in their rights. If, if, if somebody is an early stage investor, we see it in an ICO project, for example, they'll, they'll come in and say, oh, they've just dumped this much of that token. Well, if they didn't lock it up for a year within that contract, and that's just poor business practice. And this individual has every right to do what they like on a free market within the means of what they what they've signed so they shouldn't be getting upset with the people that are trying to offload and lock in profits they should be getting upset with the way the business is being run and i think within this space at the moment there is far too much talk about the token itself and the token metrics and there's celebrity out there that has been created around systemized approaches to the token the token the token the token not many people are talking about the actual bloody business because without the business being one that works one that turns a profit and one that has a reason for being well, your token's not going to be worth anything. I think that's what's missing a lot in this space. And also, how do we value without an income? How do we value these 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 um you know? It's, it's almost like a Facebook valuation. Remember when Facebook came out? They said, "Oh, hundred billion valuation based on what? Based on future revenue." They've kind of paved the way a little bit in that space, where everybody knew that yes, Facebook did have uh, an enormous value, but we couldn't put a number on it because it hadn't started. You know, having that perceived value actually represented by cash in the bank, so to speak. We've seen that roll out. We've seen that in their eyes. We've seen the success of Facebook. And obviously, in the moment, in the press, there's a lot of negativity. But we still saw Facebook's share price surge or the earnings surge recently in the last 24 hours. So it's it's a very interesting space. And um, I'm really, really interested to hear more about what you're doing with this platform because it sounds to me like a little bit of a Bloomberg of sorts in the crypto space. Would that be about right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, a much earlier version, but, uh, you know, that is the target goal uh, is to provide that institutional tool set uh, that's giving you the security, the compliance and the tools you need to trade effectively and efficiently. And uh, I I will say I've been involved from day one and the speed of which they're developing that technology is uh, is surprising and shocking to me uh, how quickly they've been able to move and, and program and get to the point they are now. And uh, I can't wait to see where it is in the next, you know, three to six months. And I mean, you're you're obviously, you know, talking with other fund managers, other people in, uh, in the space, traditional markets, you know, all, all over the place. Now, question that I have is, what level of conversation are you having with these people? Are you still the strange one sitting in the corner who, you know, they all swirl their, their scotch, puff on their cigar, pat their fat tummies and say, ha, 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 silly Joel, he'll never get this right. We'll just stay over here with our stocks and bonds. Or 
are people coming to you and going, hey, mate, listen, you're onto something here. We want to know more. Where's the level of conversation within your peers at the moment? Yeah, relating to blockchain, it's, it's an interesting question, and you know, and then particularly as you know, if I think where we are, you know, April of this year, and um, you know, let's walk through a year ago. So a year ago, I would say that room would only be made up of, and, and even let, let's take it back a few years. You know, a few years ago. You know, it was a bunch of guys in a room with hoodies. You know, I think then you, you know, you ended up okay. Maybe some traders uh, from you know, institutions that have stepped away and and wanted. You know, this is a great trading space. Now I think you, you're starting to see some guys take a look at it. Are, are they involved? No, but are they evaluating the space from let's call it the largest institutions? And, you know, if you look at the news over this past week alone, we've had a lot of news in terms of some of those not only large banking institutions, trading institutions, as well as institutional investors that are really looking hard at the space. And I think we're moving past the is it real or not to what do I need to do to actually participate? Yeah, that's really good to hear. I've uh, I've been having a, a number of conversations uh, with fund managers, with uh, not directly but indirectly with some sovereign wealth funds and whatnot. And there's definitely a lot more interest and a lot less. It's hocus pocus. I mean, we've just read recently that Goldman Sachs have now put on a crypto trader as their head of crypto assets. Or I'm not quite sure what they've what they've termed it. They also through one of their other subsidiary companies that they own purchased uh, a, a large stake in Poloniex, which is one of the biggest platforms out there to inject space into, uh, sorry, inject uh, some more growth into that space and sort of polish it back up. What we're seeing is we're seeing maybe not, I mean, Goldman Sachs putting somebody on as a head of crypto assets, so to speak, that is a direct play from one of the largest institutions in the world. Now, what we were seeing prior to that, well, certainly what I was noticing, was that they were still making moves, but institutionally they were doing it under an umbrella. They weren't willing at the earliest stage, I want to say earlier, I'm talking like end of last year, early this year, that sort of thing. They weren't willing to come out and say, yes, we are in this space, but they were happy to buy or invest or be a part of through a company held by said institution that wasn't the same name, they were happy to dabble in that space now. Now, with somebody like, you know, we talk about Goldman Sachs, we talk about Barclays, HSBC, a lot of, and you'll know this as well as anybody else, uh, uh, there's a a huge amount of wealth tied up within these institutions that are from small, wealthy families. They're, They're high net worth individuals do have a fair bit of, not power, but they're, they're a very valuable client because if you're going to get $500 million from one family, it's going to take you probably you know 50,000 other clients that are still relatively high net worth to get that $500 million. So, of course, they hold them closely. Now, some of these old money families do have old money values. So, therefore, for them to come out and say, we back this new space, this cryptocurrency, this crypto asset, this blockchain space, the competition is looking for any chink in the armor. And it could be as simple as a conversation saying, hey, listen, you know, these Muppets over here have lost their goddamn minds. They're, they're moving into this hocus-pocus you know, uh, world of Warcraft uh, world and, and moving away from traditional assets, which will provide you a yield of 3.2%, yada, yada, yada. And they can bring those clients across. Now, what I'm seeing is, is a shift, a little bit more aggressive plays coming from these huge institutions in this space. Now, I see this as being a really, really positive thing. Public 
um, involvement of massive institutions into this space. Do you see that continuing throughout the year? And do you think that regulation in the space will play a big part in that? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of questions in that that yeah, question. Sorry. So Is I'm gonna no, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with the, you know, thinking about more the wealth management aspect, and then I'll, I'll move into the the regulatory question. So from a wealth management standpoint, you know, I, I you know that's one piece that we really haven't spoken to. But if you think of this as an asset class. And, and I've looked extensively on, on correlations relative to equities, fixed income, uh, commodities, et cetera. You know, this, this is a space that is relatively uncorrelated. And so when you're building a portfolio, uh, I think it's pretty easy to see. And, and let's, let's add in a rising interest rate environment, you know, mm-hmm. the coming off of QE, you know, how that impacts uh, and, and think about the last 10 to 15 years and the, and, and the low interest rate environment you've been in, uh, but you've had a very strong equity market. You know, how does a, a wealth management, uh, uh, you know, financial planner start thinking about crypto as, as a piece of a, of a portfolio? I think it's got a very valuable piece. And if you can manage that and manage that volatility and that risk uh, associated with it, I think this is going to be an increasing uh, piece of the puzzle that uh, a lot of family offices and, and wealth managers are going to want to have a piece of. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, you know, that kind of goes piece and parcel with a lot of what we've been speaking about, both from an institutional investor, as well as that that financial planner, you know, anything that uh, we can receive from a guidance standpoint to help us with that custodial work, to help us with the security, and, and frankly, to help us, I think, a, it, it always helps to have some guidance from a regulatory standpoint in terms of what you can and can't do from an ICO or an investment standpoint. But frankly, we can do some better self-policing, but I think it's also helpful to to partner with some of these regulatory a- agencies and and really start policing some of the bad actors in the space. The more bad actors we get out, the better it is for all of us. So you, you talk about a piece, um, which I'm assuming you're you know would be a part there of your portfolio. Um, now, when we talk about the piece. Um, I've just done a trip to New Zealand. I had a bit of a family holiday working, yada, yada, yada. We we went all over the place. I I was speaking with my mother and father-in-law and some of the conversation with them, not just them, but other people that I was speaking to was talking about the space, right, and the piece that you were talking about, which is how much of your portfolio are people willing to put in. Now, this is a pretty difficult question, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway, Joel. (laughs) Bear with me. This, This piece that you speak of, what's your scope for that piece? Is that piece 2%? Is it 5% for the average investor? Is it a 5% portfolio? Is it 10% of the portfolio? How significant a piece of the average person or institutional portfolio are we seeing this space becoming at the moment? So now I'm, I'm going to go way back in time to put on my uh, early day financial planner hat, and <laughs> uh, and I'm going to give you all the risk caveats that, I, that I'll go before I give you some numbers. But you know, first we were speaking about high net worth individuals, you know, people that are that have that financial planner. Uh, so when I think about a portfolio. Uh, where you would start to add cryptocurrency into, I'm thinking about a person that has a pretty broad diversified portfolio from to start with. Yes. Uh, I think when you start adding in the questions of what are you willing to lose, 
what are you willing to accept from a volatility standpoint? Um, those help you gauge and, and start to triangulate uh, what do you feel comfortable with. But if we're talking about uh, an individual high net worth investor with call it, you know, $5 million, $10 million, I see no issue with having it, as you mentioned, a 2 to 5% position in cryptocurrency, as long as those other caveats are met. You know, they're okay with, with the volatility. They're okay with the risk in the space. Because frankly, you just took a, a 50% haircut. You have to be okay with that and be willing to actually step in now and start thinking, you know, I, I'm willing to, you know, kind of double down on this. And uh, uh, I see this as an investable space. If you were just in this for, I thought it was hot at the end of last year, I wanted to continue to ride the the uh, the wave, you know, that, that that's you know, probably not the space for you at the present time. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, I want to double back on something that you mentioned before about, you know, the, the, the low interest environment uh, with the high equity prices and the bullish market that sort of followed up to the start of this year. Yes, we have seen US equities, uh, you know, I say U.S. equities because U.S. equities is really the barometer uh, for the Western world as far as the health of the economy and the greater market. Uh, the old saying is if the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. It's fairly true. It's fairly relevant. Now, of course, with that, we've seen what this is our ninth year of bull run since the uh, GSE or that was 2008 where it began. But, you know, we're in our t- ninth or tenth year. Now, markets don't go up forever. And anyone that tells you that they do is either trying to rip you off or fall. Because they just don't know, um, you know. If, if this conversation comes up quite a lot to me uh, at various events that I speak at, and, and whenever I'm around um, curiosity, I shall say. But does the falling equity market boost crypto? Do you think? You know, if we think about it as as a part of a portfolio, I think this is a great diversification piece, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you think of an alternate investment vehicle uh, that could potentially hedge against a a falling equity market um, or a falling fixed income market. Um, You know, with that said, I think it always depends upon the uh, veracity of that drawdown. You know, you get an equity market that you know, within a very short period of time, you're down, you know, double digits, 10%, 15%, 20%. <laughs> that, that can spook people overall, you know, because I would tend to bet that, you know, there's a good chunk of the people that are invested in the crypto world that still have significant equity holdings. And getting hit on the equity side uh, may force them to liquidate some on the crypto side. So I, I can't say that it would be completely insulated. But uh, given what the market's already done, um, you would hope that uh, uh, we, w- we would see some uh, stability even in, in the face of a, a declining equity market. Now, I'm gonna, with that said, I think it would be far more helpful as you have. And, and maybe, you know, I'm going to caveat the timing we're in. If you had institutional investors, if we could... Uh, have a better measurement of, as you mentioned earlier, valuation and and better valuation metrics to measure and have confidence in, then you can turn to and say, all right, we're at a point where this needs to stabilize here. You need to be buying this. That's a little more difficult in the market we're in today. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It'd be nice if they came together right now because it would seem like the optimal timing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, one of the things that um, I think is is also relevant when we when we talk about falling equity markets. Not suggesting that that's going to happen by any stretch of the imagination, but it will. Markets cycle; they go up, they go down. That's just the way the world works. That's the way capitalism works, and it will repeat itself. Now. One of the things, one of the reasons why Bitcoin and this decentralized world was sort of founded was after the global financial crisis. And the global financial crisis didn't give many people an opportunity to have any choice. Now we do have choice, choice from putting our money with people we don't trust. Now, the global financial crisis really taught us some things, which was people that are in high places will not be punished. Uh, I don't think anybody went to jail. Uh, no one was prosecuted, um, the, so persecuted the way that they should have been. They, there wasn't enough people responsible for this collapse paying the price. It was everyday investors. It was the superannuation funds of the world, the pension funds of the world, the investors. It was the mums and dads that took the hits while all the big dogs went back on their yachts and said, ha, 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 I'm away with this. I'm fine. Now, that really caused I me. Mean, I, was, I was in London at the time. I was trading in London during the global financial crisis. Uh, I was actually short Northern Rock, which not many people know was the first bank to collapse uh, under the weight or, or you know, certainly um, – fall very heavily and be bailed out amongst the first. And and then we saw Bear Stearns, of course, then Lehman Brothers and, and you know, it, it, the roll call continues. But what I saw over there was a lot of people get hurt significantly. I was working with a bunch of other guys in finance that um, I, I didn't work for an institution. I worked for myself. But we, we worked together that were about to retire and, and they're still working now trying to recover the money they lost. So a lot of distrust, a lot of frustration, a lot of anger was pointed towards these people and they did not do anything about it. If we see another event like that, we see now we have a new market in this crypto asset class. Do you think that another cataclysmic, Correction and misuse of trust and and anger coming from that. Do you think that will push people really into the only other option, which is to take some control back of their own and go into the crypto market? Yeah, and I, you know if you, if you look at a lot of the survey work that's been done within the space by. Uh, a lot of the participants, you can see it uh, if you break up the, the the various demographic age groups. So if we take you know the baby boomers relative to the Gen X, the Gen Y, millennial, centennial, etc., you can see that breakdown of where that distrust grows as the the age drops. And so as time goes on. Um, you know, yes, I think those those are the the participants that probably continue to grow in the space the fastest. Um, mm. And to your point, you know, if we saw something, you know, to that extensive size again, um, you know, it, it only probably accelerates that. Yeah, and the, the rise of the millennials has certainly coincided very nicely with the rise of this new asset class space. I mean, I was speaking to a, 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 another person earlier on today. Um, 
you know, talking about the fact that the younger generation doesn't seem to have too much of an interest in traditional stocks and shares. And we, we questioned as to why. And the conclusion was, I believe it's because the they're in the social media space, which is the instant gratification space. They need instant results. They want to know. Now they take a photo of themselves and they put it up online somewhere and they get likes, they get comments, they get that instant gratification. Whereas your generation and then my generation, we're more used to actually having to be patient a little bit more and to work a little bit more for, for our results. Cryptocurrency millennials work out very well. Now, millennials are a la- very large number of uh, of people. And as they become voters and become more involved and uh, and start to vote with their money as well, it's, it's the space is just so well designed for this new generation of careers, of investors, of technology experts to grow it. And I think that's an area where a lot of the growth we've seen at the moment has come through, a lot of that distrust in traditional markets because we've they've grown up seeing their parents go through the GFC. They might have been you know, 12, 13 or teenagers during that period, but they felt that. Anybody who had a, a family member, an adult in their life, that adult was invested. So that adult felt pain through that. That distrust has now helped to create this market. And I think it's going to continue to gain momentum. And also, it's this younger generation that are tech savvy, that are the Silicon Valley of the world, that are now being drained into this blockchain community. Again, for the same reason, the massive gains, the, the fact we can change the way that the world operates, and it's a very disruptive technology. So I think we're kind of coming close to the perfect storm. Two things lacking, a bit of regulation to give us a rule book and a bit of an understanding for institutional investors on how to actually value companies if we can get all those things coming together right around the time that we start to see a bit of a market dip in traditional markets, I think we've got the perfect storm. What are your yeah, thoughts I'll, on that? I'll even you know add to that a little bit. So also just from a you know size of that demographic group that you just mentioned, uh, you know it's comparable to that baby boomer group at least in the U.S. So you know your your point is these these you know this group of millennial centennials age up. Uh, the likelihood that they have a significant amount of capital uh, to put to work in potentially a different space than what uh, what their parents and grandparents uh, were invested in, you know, is, is very possible. Um, I, I would also add that, you know, I think that distrust um, coupled with blockchain is going to be perpetuated in a lot of the ideas that that you're seeing right now from an ICO standpoint. You know, the, the regaining control, you know, and I'll add Facebook in there, regaining control of your name, your data, and who you are. You know, the ability of blockchain to, to make you, uh, you know, an anonymous person again and to be able to control your data, potentially tokenize that data in, in various aspects of your life. But to have the data that you own, not where someone else owns, and continues to sell your data again and again and again. Um, so I, I think it is about control. I'm going to give you one last piece. I, I, I think a lot of people, you know, and call it my generation and older, you know, while we believe in giving back, I think there there needs to be more from a, from a, a social understanding. I think this group also understands that. And I think it's a very important part, you know, with, with my involvement as an advisor with Blockchain Terminal and some of the other uh, ICOs that I've been in, involved with. There's just a real sense of, of community and and trying to give something back to the world. You know, there, there's there's that dual, you know, charitable yet business side uh, to this ecosystem, which I, I I found you know very rewarding uh, with working a lot of with a lot of these companies. And you know, I, I think that's something not to be uh, dismissed. 
Yeah, it's not a profit at all cost model, is it? Um, Joel, look, I've got one more question for you before we, uh, before we let you go, mate. Uh, I have to ask it because uh, it's just something that I always ask. As far as, you know, you bring a huge amount of experience to the space, as we've gathered from the conversation, and uh, your CV speaks for itself. But, I mean, for anybody who is looking to get into not just investing, but investing particularly into the crypto asset marketplace. There might be someone who's a baby boomer who has heard about the space but doesn't really know what to do. Somebody who's young and looking to get into it or somebody who's basically just you know in the middle of their life and they just want to know what to do. What would be the major thing that you would say to them as a point to keep them safe or to give them information? What would be the number one point that you would say to somebody looking to get involved in the space? I'll give you a couple of different points. So first, uh, you know, I think, you know, some of the things we've spoken about, I think are extraordinarily important, you know, really, you know, trying to understand, you know, does this market make sense? Does this product make sense within that marketplace? What is the place of that product? Is it truly differentiated? Is it truly disruptive? I think one thing I always ask before I, you know, really look at any sort of investment in this space does it need blockchain? Is blockchain necessary? Yes. You know, and I think, you know, that basic question a lot of times isn't, you know, people are just slapping blockchain on everything, um, you know, mm. to, to run an ICO and get it done. You know, that's not necessarily necessary and probably is not going to be a good idea. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunities in using blockchain in a lot of different areas, some of which we're not even, you know, utilizing yet. Um, so I, I think that's the first piece, you know, does this make sense? You know, that kind of Peter Lynch, you know, does this product make sense? Would I use this product? You know, do I, you know, where, where, how do I see this impact in my life? The next one, Logic. yeah, who, who am I investing against? You know, I think a lot of people think about every reason why they're going to be right, why their product's right, whether that investment is right, you know, but I, I think most investors, particularly individual investors, don't think clearly on the other side of that. What happens if I'm wrong? What happens, you know, if everybody, you know, is trading against me, is out before I am, is, is, you know, working against me? You know, who are those people? You know, and in today's world, this market moves really, really fast. And you have to understand that that, that speed of how it moves, um, understand, you know, is this the, you know, is that the right space for me currently? Do I need to wait a little longer before I let myself in? And then, and then the final piece is, you know, back to those, you know, age old questions of finance, you know, what am I willing to, to lose? What am I willing to risk? How much volatility can I accept? You know, and, and does that make sense for me? And it really needs to be thought of in a, in the context of an entire portfolio. You know, this shouldn't be something where you're taking your entire, you know, 401k superannuation fund, you know, whatever your retirement vehicle is and, and throwing it all in crypto when you, when you retire, you know, it, it really needs to be thought out well from a, a total portfolio perspective. Mate, absolute pleasure. I think that was a fantastic answer to wrap things up. Joel, look, one thing, mate, What, where do people find more of you of the projects you're working on? How do they find more about all about Joel? Well, I'm, I'm pretty much on, on most uh, places, uh, you know, LinkedIn, et cetera. Um, you know, if you want to know more about uh, Blockchain Terminal, which is, you know, the, the core ICO that I'm working with right now, it's bct.io, and there's still a few days left in the ICO. And, and uh, I'll tell you, if you want a, a place to play uh, this market and, you know, the tokenization, basically you're, you're, you're utilizing their utility token for uh, taking a share of the exchange fees that they will make, uh, the subscription model, as well as uh, uh, any apps on their open app 
architecture, uh, you know, it's a pretty good way to play a growth of a market if that's what you believe in. Well, it sounds like I'm interested, mate. I want to know more. But Joel, I appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here, mate. I, I really do. Um, a wealth of experience, a huge amount of understanding for not just about the crypto space, but for overall institutional investment space. It's been an absolute pleasure picking your brain, getting a number of answers, and I thank you so much for your time, mate. Uh, thank you very much for having me. No problem, Joel. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. The Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast is hosted by Craig Cobb. All Trader Cobb courses, products, and tools can be found at tradercobb.com because experience matters.